one of the announcements that um, Davey left and that I wanted to make is also in the bulletin and I think is um, one that can bring rejoicing based on the truth of that final verse of, um, as you see in our bulletin, our sister and one that was loved by uh, so many of us, um, Robin Weintraub, as many of you know, went home to be with the Lord um, Thursday evening. Um, and as it says in the bulletin there, we praise the Lord for his salvation to her. We absolutely rejoice in the salvation that she so firmly held that she would cling to throughout each and every circumstance. And again, as we just, as Lori led us in that um, closing verse even there of bowing in humble adoration and seeing God and proclaiming how great thou art, the joy that she now has, the, the lack of any pain, the lack of want in any circumstance, nothing but pure happiness and rejoicing is going on for Robin right now. And I absolutely understand that it does bring sadness and, and mourning to many of us um, who, who were very close to Robin and knew how much she emphasized love and all that that brings, but she would not want us to be sad. She would say, um, if she was here, she'd probably tell us to shut up if we were crying and to say, just be happy. I'm with the Lord. I, I, you, sh you should be jealous of me. Um, because she understood what it is that she was awaiting. As she was nearing death, she knew she was awaiting her Savior, and now uh, we rejoice in his salvation to her and where it is that she is. Um, incredible um, testimony in the last number of years and what a privilege it was to get to know her and her constant um, selflessness in so many different ways. Uh, many of you grew far closer to Robin in the last six months than you ever were. Um, I know I did as well. Um, and just the constant emphasis of her, I, I always hear her telling me, um, you know, just if the world would stop being bitter, if people would stop fighting and bickering over things and just love. The biggest thing for her was just love. Everything else is just a waste of time. It's too much just to love. Um, so we rejoice this morning um, as our sister has gone home to be with the Lord. And um, details on the memorial service will be shared as they become available. And we'll make sure that people are aware of what all is going on in that, um, you know, on, in our text here, and as we've continued to see here in Philippians, we're going to look at this morning of joy in the face of trouble. Having joy in the face of difficulty, in the face of troubles, even in spite of those troubles, still having joy. Because whether things are good or things are bad, the joy of our salvation uh, is not being removed. Um, and, and in a day of coming together, of being able to rejoice in the salvation and of, of one of God's children going home to be with him and the difficulty that was faced. We can see the testimony not only of Robin, but here we're going to look into his word and to see in Philippians 1 this example, this testimony of the Apostle Paul of rejoicing even in spite of the troubles that had faced him. Um, Throughout this opening part of Philippians here, even just in the greeting, we saw in verses 7 through 11, a lot of the heart of Paul. Again, I love the way that he writes. He writes with emotion, with different feelings that um, the Spirit have allowed him to have, and he shows that he has a true love for the people to whom he is writing. He says in verse 7, because I have you in my heart. He says that they are partakers also of his grace how greatly he longs for them in all the bowels of Jesus Christ. He has this deep feeling within him to be with them. And then as we looked at last week, and this I pray in verse 9, 
that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the, unto the glory and praise of God. And all that Paul was longing for for these fellow believers, these fellow partakers of the gospel of Christ, in all of these things, knowing that the reason and the foundation for any of it is in the close of verse 11, by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It is not as if he is praying for their love to abound so that people will just simply feel better, so that better things will be accomplished, but so that the Lord would be honored and glorified and receive all praise in these things. And now we arrive into verses 12 through 14 here this morning, and we're going to see this joy even in the face of trouble. And we've looked um, constantly, and there's going to be things that you're going to hear me say as we go throughout a lot of Philippians and say, hey, I think you've said that each of the last six weeks. And there's a very good chance I did, and I make no apologies for that. Joy, very, very different from happiness. Some of us this morning, not exactly happy. I understand that. I'm aware of that. We've come in this morning. We go into work tomorrow, um, whatever the case may be, and we are not always going to be happy. But for the Christian, the one who has received salvation, there is a joy that, that does not uh, just simply pass away. It is not gone. It is not something we have conjured up in and of ourselves. We don't just do away with this joy. Galatians 5 tells us this joy is administered by the Spirit. The Christian, when they see the things that go on in the world, and we look and we are not very happy, um, this might be sensitive, but election day is coming up, we may not be happy with the result in any circumstance. Guess what? Retain your joy. God is still on the throne regardless of who is elected in any office, to any position. God is still the one who is ruling. So while happiness may tend to go up and down, our joy should be remaining consistent. Let's look here at verses 12 through 14 here in Philippians chapter 1. It says, But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you here this morning to ask that you would give us clarity of mind and that you would allow us and, and give to us the eyes to, to see your word, the ears to hear it, and the hearts to receive it. God, I pray that as we, as we examine the truth here in these few verses of even a testimony of the Apostle Paul recognizing that, that he was simply an instrument used for your purposes, and as we look upon his rejoicing even in the midst of circumstances which are very trying and very difficult, that, that we can still he, see his boundless joy, understanding the salvation that he has received and the glory that awaits him as he looks forward to the day of being able to come face to face with you. Father, this morning as we come together as your church, we rejoice in the salvation that we have received and we praise you for being a good and wondrous and gracious God. Father, we love you and we thank you here this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting off, um, I love verse 12 because he says something that does not um, exactly seem to always make a ton of sense. 
It says, But I would, ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel. He's saying, What has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Um, he's saying something then, a little bit of the context here is again understanding that we know he was in prison. When we understand the context of where Paul is writing, it's not as if he's saying, hey, I'm living in the greatest of places. I have the most money. I'm the smartest, most intelligent person. Um, my family is the best. I have no struggles. And all of these things that are so perfect and wonderful and comfortable are allowing me the privilege of furthering the gospel. Understanding that he was constantly shipwrecked, constantly in prison, constantly in so many dire circumstances, and they would have, they well knew much of the circumstance here. They were uh, reaching out to him, sending Epaphroditus to say, we know that he is in prison. We want the gospel to be preached. We want his ministry to be successful. So we're going to go and send someone to see how we can pray and better help him in this circumstance. Um, I think many of you understand the sentiment here of the Philippians of saying, hey, someone that you love very dearly is imprisoned and they're a minister of the gospel and you would like for them to be out of prison, right? Seems logical that you just would want the person not to be in jail. That's what a good friend would probably do. Okay, Some of you that didn't agree are terrible friends. Terrible. And I will not call you if I'm ever in jail. But he's saying all of this and keeping in mind with the context of his present situation, not something many of us are rushing into saying, man, I really would love to be in chains right now in a prison without much food, without much any comfort at all. Um, not many of us are flocking to those situations, but even here, and he starts off, but I would, you should understand, which is essentially him saying, listen to this. I don't want you to miss what I am going to say. This is important. Okay, this is when, you know, the mom says, I'm only going to tell you once. It's you better listen, because this is important. And if you miss it, we, never mind, you understand. Can't punish kids anymore. So he's saying, Listen to what it is that I am going to say. This is incredibly important. He is setting the table for something very, very critical and writing to them. So listen up, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel. He's saying that what has happened to me in these bad circumstances has actually served to advance the gospel. In no way is it said that it is withholding or it is restricting me. It is causing me to no longer be able to minister the gospel to those that are around me. He doesn't say that a situation has even stolen his joy. Just slide down to verse 18 for a minute. He says, What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and, therein, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice saying, in these things, I'm going to rejoice, and even more, rejoice. His situation was bad. It is, again, not something that many of us are running into, but is saying that even this situation that I am in has served to advance the gospel. He's not complaining about it. We don't see Paul saying, man, it's so unfair. I thought God was going to use me to share the gospel. I thought I was going to be able to talk about him and teach people about him, and I had all these plans, and I thought God was really going to use me, and now here I am in jail, so I guess God's not going to use me. But instead he turns in and says, you know what? A lot of the situation has really advanced the gospel well. It's so ironic by many of our standards because many Christians now, both culturally and especially in this Western culture, that our, the God of our culture is comfort. 
We just want to be very, very comfortable in all situations. We think that the best way um, that we can share the gospel is to have our own jet to be able to fly to all these different places. This is what we see with many, many big churches and false teachers and, and pastors that are saying, hey, God wants me to do a glorious work, so I'm going to need $60 million for my private jet so I can fly to all these places without the gospel, um, that I need to stay in the greatest of hotels so that I can um, share the gospel. The idea that comfort is going to bring fruitful and lasting and incredible um, evangelistic efforts is something that has never really been proven biblically. When do we see the church growing the most throughout history? Under persecution. Well, why do I need to go out there and do things if I'm comfortable? I have, no, I have never been urged to. I don't really see a need or a passion to go out. And here he says something very um, anti-American, if you will, in understanding that, hey, all of these bad things have really served to advance the gospel. And this is very counterintuitive um, to the way that many people tend to think. And again, think about what he has just outlined to them. He's talked about the joy. He's talked about um, these things and desiring that their love may abound. All of this is a very, very positive, exhortive letter up to this point. And then getting them saying, listen to me very, very carefully. These things that you are concerned about are advancing the gospel. Be encouraged that these things that I know that you think are bad are actually advancing the cause of the gospel. His joy is resting firm in spite of his imprisonment. He's not off to the side. He's not uh, murmuring. He's not doing whatever uh, we tend to do or what we've seen in different situations. His joy is not going to be robbed by anything. And we understand that the joy of a Christian, the only thing that's going to take it away at times is going to be sin. When we continue and we're living in sin, our joy tends to be robbed there for a time. Being bitter in circumstances, being unsatisfied, being afraid, having a spirit of fear, which we know that perfect love casts out fear. Of murmuring, this is pretty much all the Old Testament and not just Israel, but us as well, right? We murmur, we complain, it's not as good. We look back and say, man, God, you know, I used to have this job and I used to have all of these other things and... You know, maybe you're not, you know, as loving to me as you used to be. We see Israel in the Exodus being brought out of so many things and then looking back and saying, did you just bring us out here to die? Did you free us from all of this for us to have terrible food and just to die here wandering in the wilderness? And the way back to this joy when sin does come in is simply to repent. Um, it's in the first song there, and even in Victory in Jesus, repent, right? I repented of my sins, right? This is something that's not oftenly, often going to be taught about, but without repentance, um, we're never truly going to understand the saving faith that is required. We are promised tribulation. Jesus himself in John 16 says, you will endure, you will receive tribulation. That's not an encouraging message, and praise God he didn't stop there, right? We will have tribulation, but I have overcome the world, is what he says. He doesn't just say, hey, things are going to be bad, so you know, enjoy yourselves. How hopeless would that be? And this is the problem that many of us have with, um, whether it's an open-air preaching kind of forum and a person that seems to only preach uh, condemnation upon people and never offering the, the actual understanding of, of love of God and of salvation. They're just sitting out yelling about, a just God is going to um, send those who, who don't believe to hell, which absolutely is true. 
But that's not gospel. That's simply preaching condemnation. You then have to allow the truth of the gospel to be prevalent, of talking of Christ overcoming the world. In James chapter 1, a familiar passage, it says, Consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You're not suffering just so that you suffer and just so that God is sitting in heaven laughing and saying, hey, that's unfortunate. The, the trials that we face, the things that we are going to endure, the Bible makes it very, very clear. It is for our growth, for our maturity, for our sanctification to produce endurance and perseverance. It's not suffering just for the sake of suffering. There is a, a profit and a reason which is for us to further rely upon him and him alone for things. When trials come up, where do you go? As much as I love to say my first instinct is always right to prayer, right to the word, and right to God, I often have a tendency to say, hey, let me try to work on this myself, and if that doesn't work, then I'll go and do what I know I needed to do at the start. This isn't the thought process I have of, hey, trials come up, Okay, so first I'm going to try it, and then if that doesn't work, I'm going to go to God. The first instinct is, okay, how can I solve this problem? I'm in great distress. Things are all over the place. What am I going to do? Well, I'm going to try to find a way to make it better. It's not always the most common instinct to first just go to prayer and say, Lord, I have no clue what's going to happen. I have no clue what's going on. Lord, lead me in these things. Give me wisdom and discernment, and I pray that your will would be done. Often we just kind of set off down the road with no directions and just hope that it's what God wants us to do. Or maybe I'm just talking about myself here. I don't know. So Paul is writing these things to them of saying all of these rough situations, all that has happened, currently being imprisoned, again, in chains as he writes this, all of this has furthered the gospel. He had already endured many things. It's not someone with this uh, a metaphor that he understood as, well, I may suffer, so if I ever do, this is what I'm going to teach you. He is actively suffering. He is actively enduring at the time of this writing. He is writing this letter from a private residence chained day and night, 24-7, to a Roman soldier. Now, this is far different than just having your own cell, a little bit of privacy. This is actively 24-7 chained to another person. No privacy in eating, sleeping, writing, thinking, praying, anything. Now, for some of you who are more private people by nature, this is like absolutely terrifying to you. Of You don't even want people in your house. They just happen to show up every day, right? Every six hours or so, that these soldiers would be rotated out. So you would have about four in each day. No privacy in anything that he is doing. So as he writes this letter, he is actively kind of having to borrow some space to write these letters from the soldier that's next to him. This is not as if it's, um, I think the standard would have been about 18 inches or so as far as what room was allotted to him for the chain. So this is not as if... Um, I am chained to any one of you and I have this much space. Or myself and Rob are, are linked together, but I have all this room and freedom for myself. This is no. If I'm going to the bathroom, you're there with me. Um, anything that I'm doing, you're there with me. This is an incredibly um, close-knit understanding of being in chains. I don't think many of us are actively signing up for this kind of a thing. Uh, many of us would not... Um, 
loved this for such a long time. And this was over a span of many at different times, because again, he was in prison many times, uh, usually often for about two years here at a time, but no privacy whatsoever. And even in the end, he holds great joy in spite of this situation, in spite of this circumstance. What is joyous about this current circumstance of having no freedom, no privacy, not being able to do anything except to sit and to write? But yet he still holds this great joy because a guard was also chained to Paul 24-7. Yeah, he's chained to, to the guard, and that's not great, but guess who else is chained to Paul? The guards are. He sits here and goes, well, this person can't go anywhere. If they do, they're going to die. He understands, I have this person next to me for six hours. Do you think Paul was chatty? I mean, just, just I love imagining this, and it's something that I, I always think is funny. Of We think, man, him constantly being chained to a guard, that must have been bad, and it, he couldn't have done anything. And he's sitting here going, this guy can't leave. <laughs> right? This is like, the kids, you're not able to go anywhere. You're not getting away from what I'm saying. You are going to hear everything that I'm going to say because you have nowhere to go. You have to be here. A guard was chained to him 24-7, rotating out about every six hours, hearing the gospel, and as verse 13 and 14 suggest, even leading some to salvation in Christ. So why is it that he rejoices in a circumstance of being, being in chains, actively within a foot and a half to two feet with another guard continuously? Because, man, this, person's, this, this soldier that is here is going to hear the truth of God, he's going to hear the gospel, and he's going to see... He's going to see these things that are being written, of seeing this love that he is penning out for these other believers. They will see these things. And even some coming to salvation. Kind of frames a little bit of the way that we interpret circumstances, doesn't it? We say, man, this, this job is very, um, it's, it's hard for me. You know, I'm constantly working so close together with people that are not very positive, that are not edifying, that, that don't have best interests for anything. And I just need to simply escape it because I'm always with them. I can't ever get away as opposed to frame it on the other side and say, man, we can't get away, which means they also can't get away from me. So often, the Christian response tends to say, well, we need to rid ourselves and free ourselves and actively just run away from any, um, any experience or any conversation that's not always going to be positive as opposed to, okay, I can't go anywhere, but they can't either. How am I going to use this opportunity? Of even in a hospital bed, you can't go anywhere. Guess what? How many nurses do you have? You're laid up in bed for two weeks with nurses rotating in and out, with doctors coming in and out, different people coming in and out. Great. Share the gospel in there. If I today end up at Garfield County Jail, hopefully some of you would visit. I don't know. I know some of you would point and laugh at me, but that's cool. Am I then no longer a minister of the gospel just because now I'm, I'm in prison for preaching? No, it's just not in the church. Now it's in the jail. Great. Whole new audience, whole new opportunities. I could sit there and I can murmur and say, man, that God, this isn't fair. Look at this. I'm constantly around the same people each and every day. I can't go anywhere. I'm always with them. They're always with me. I have no other option. I need to be able to, oh, wait a minute. I can't go anywhere. I can pray. I can write. You can teach. You can have conversations. They can't go anywhere. They're going to have to listen. Making the best use of these opportunities. 
He makes it clear the desire and the goal of his ministry was the progress of the gospel, the furthering of the gospel. The word that's used there is um, prokope, which is moving ahead against obstacles. This is not just progress in the sense of wide open road, perfect, ready to go, move forward. It is inherent within the word that is used, implying obstacles. This is the, the soldier having to cut through the forest to get to where he wants to go. Or the explorer that's having to, to travel through the rough terrain. There's going to be obstacles. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9, Paul writes, Why, that the door is wide, but there are many adversaries. Does that mean you don't walk through the door just because there's people in the way? So often we see Paul emphasizing and frequently bringing up all the trials and saying, but hey, it was all to advance the cause of the gospel, and because of that, I rejoice. Yes, there were many adversaries. None of it was easy. Frequently, um, he had to be very, very careful about the way that he would travel. But even so, it was for the progress of the gospel. Flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I want us just to see briefly his encouragement that he offers to Timothy. Again, it's a young pastor seeking to lead a, a church and lead a people. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, I have it here of just verses 8 through 10, but I'm just going to read through 13. He encourages him by saying, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It is a faithful saying, For if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. Here he's exhorting him, he's encouraging him of, yes, and if you're familiar with the context of Timothy and where it is that he ministered, he was not um, dealing with an incredibly um, advantageous uh, city. The place in which he ministered was not going was not um, highly approval. They did not have a high approval rating regarding the gospel. It was not something that was going to be easy. He had to endure many things, and he's exhorting him here. Remember that Jesus Christ, the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Because how is the Christian to endure all that he is going to come across? How are you going to endure the troubles and the trials and things that you come across? each and every day, or even just looking at the bigger things that come up, how are you supposed to endure if you don't remember why it is that you're doing it? How are you going to endure if you do not remember that Jesus Christ, the Son of David, was raised from the dead according to the Scriptures, that He did all that He did, and that, what is it that we saw in verse 6 of Philippians? He who hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. We talked in the Sunday school so that He cannot go back on His promises. This is why you endure, because of what it is that you know, because you believe. And, and Paul is so firm in this. I love the testimony that he gives, because he doesn't neglect to mention his sufferings. He doesn't give a picture that things are going to be perfect, that things are going to be fine, which is often taught of, hey, your finances are tough? Man, that's really bad. I know how to fix your finances. Love God. Well, maybe I'm going to still be really, really poor, 
but I'll still love God. Yes, you may be. Well, if you want to be healed of that sickness, all you have to do is just trust in God more. Well, no, actually now you may just have a different perspective on the sickness that you have and glorify God for it. Just because you love God doesn't mean you're never going to get sick, you're never going to get hurt, you're always going to have a bunch of money, right? As great as that may sound, and it tickles the ears, and it makes people smile and really want to give to that person, that is not what the Bible teaches. But, but it does promise that, hey, that, that sickness that you have, it's not eternal. You're going to have the glorified body. You're going to be restored. All of these things are going to be corrected. All will be redeemed in the end. And so we see Paul, even as he writes to Timothy, as he does to the Philippians, he's not complaining. He says, man, the suffering, the trials, all that is going to come is an unavoidable element, but it is a very small cost for the progress of the gospel. The, the sufferings of this present life are nothing to be compared with the glory that is in Christ, the glory that you look forward to, that you await, and that many of you, even on, on this day, each and every week, you come in and you think, man, I can't wait for that day. I cannot wait to hear again the promise that God is going to redeem all things unto himself through the work of his Son. And we get to see him and stand before him in all of his glory and praise him, how great thou art. We look at the example of Joseph, all that he endured. He endured great hardship. Why? For the purpose of good, for the purpose of God. It wasn't just because God said, Joseph, I just really want you to suffer just for fun. No, it was for his, his sanctification and for his growth and for a purpose. But oftentimes we don't see it. Imagine only knowing half of the story of the life of Joseph. Of not having a full testimony of Scripture, of getting all the way maybe just through like chapter 40 in Genesis and not ever knowing these things along the way. We see such a small scope of each and every day in our lives and we think that we just know how everything is supposed to go, don't we? We can often say, well, God, why, is it, why did this happen? This doesn't make much sense. Completely having no understanding of what's going to come on the next day or why it is. But we can know he is working all things for himself. Imagine the disciples of, and well, we see their response when Jesus says that he was going to die, and they're outraged, right? They can't believe it. Why, Jesus, why do you have to die? That's not going to help anything. This isn't good. You're supposed to do all of these things. The death of Christ here is one of the greatest trials that's ever happened. And he endured and he suffered in his work on the cross. Obedience made perfect in suffering and in his death and what it is that he endured and he suffered, he's brought redemption for all of those who repent and believe. Do you think Jesus still retained his joy throughout the suffering, throughout the circumstance in which he Endured? Absolutely. And this is why Paul continues to encourage the church, even with his own circumstances, saying, hey, look at me. Look at, look at what I'm enduring right now. No reason to complain. The gospel is being furthered in this. Rejoice. And he continues to rejoice in it. Quickly in these last two verses. Verse 13, So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Depending on the translation that you have, it'll either be palace or it'll be a, a praetorian guard. It'll either reference places or people. In the Greek, it's more of a reference to the, to the people here, that are here. 
to the guards that are in this place. Now, palace is understandable because that's where they would have been housed. It would have been in the governor's house, and you can see that. Um, but in the original rendering of the Greek text, you see a contrast here of, of the people and of the guards compared to and in all others. Again, a reference of people. Either way that you look at it would be an acceptable understanding. These Praetorian Guards were originally composed of 10,000 soldiers established by Caesar Augustus. Again, this is kind of an incredible group, right? Um, those of you that like the war movies, you like a lot of those different things, Roman soldiers, guards, all of that. These are your people, okay? These are your guys. They eventually became so powerful that they would protect and even choose the emperor so much that they weren't just protecting him. It was, okay, we need a new one. We're going we're gonna to pick it. We're in charge. These were the people that ran the show. Through some of Paul's ministry, um, because of his continued ministering to them, particularly here as Paul is writing this, he would have been chained to one of these individuals, the rotating out. So these guards are the ones that he would have been chained with, would have been preaching to, teaching, praying for, um, probably as he's writing this, say, hey, do you want to know what I'm writing? Right? I got six hours. Where am I going to go? Sure. Tell me what you're writing. Okay? By Paul's ministry and through some of these, even Caesar's own house was converted. We see that towards the end of chapter 4 here in Philippians. And as, as you see this, you have, to, you have to look at his faithfulness and see, man, how consistent was Paul as he's being chained to these people? Of guards that are so actively um, just so firm, right? These aren't just super laid-back people. They're not like me, and they're just kind of careless, like, hey, just kind of, you know, enjoy the day, whatever. Rigid, tough, mean, right? Waiting for you to do something so they can cut you, right? That's the kind of people that these are. How consistent and, and firm would Paul have had to be in his testimony and with his faithfulness and his ministry to them? That they are coming to receive Christ as they hear the preaching of the word bringing converts and even so much to extend to the house of Caesar. Just imagine the incredible consistency here. How encouraging is it when we know those who are wildly consistent in being faithful to the cause of Christ, to, to the gospel. Uh, we just celebrated Reformation Day, and you look at men like Martin Luther, you can look all the way down throughout the Reformation, different people throughout church history. Why is it such an incredible encouragement and testimony? Because they remained faithful to the end. They were consistent in those things. Imagine Paul trying to be political and say, well, I don't, I don't really believe all of that stuff, so maybe you could kind of let me go. I'll, I promise I'll just stop. Don't you think at some point he probably tried to reason within himself, you know, I'd probably be a lot more effective for the gospel if I wasn't in these chains, so maybe I'll lie and say I don't really believe it so that I can get out there of the missionary who has a gun to their head and is being asked, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Do you believe, are you a Christian? Who has to then in their mind say, okay, am I going to stand firm and remain faithful or am I going to lie so that I can, quote, be more effective elsewhere because I'll live? One of the most wild things to me is this belief that I am more effective in my life than in my death for the gospel. Man, it's hard for me to mess things up in my death, Right? A lot easier when I'm living. The church has been built under the persecution because of the blood of those who remained faithful and who were consistent and didn't get moved off because of the sake of comfort. They understood that comfort was a luxury not afforded to those who remained faithful. 
in these times. And then in verse 14, it says, And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. As others saw his imprisonment and his faithfulness, other believers were encouraged to do the same. They were encouraged to speak with courage. They were encouraged to speak with boldness, to be firm on these things. You don't look at examples like that and say, whew, I'd really hate if I ever had to talk about it. You're, you're encouraged, right? This is why when, when we go, you, someone's in a group together and you go and you talk about who Christ is with somebody else, they're super firm, they're bold, they're courageous in their speech. It encourages you. You want to, you have more courage. You don't shy away as much. Um, in one of the commentaries, John MacArthur notes this, and it was both convicting as well as encouraging, which are always fun to have. He notes that much like cowardice, courage is contagious. Just think about that. Much like cowardice, courage is contagious. That really makes you consider the company that you keep, right? Why is there, why is, what's one of the main purposes of the church? For the mutual edification of the body, right? To build each other up, to encourage one another. Paul here, just by his life, by his testimony, his writing, his love for them, encouraged others, as he notes in 14, they are now speaking with more confidence. Why? Because Paul was great? No. But because they saw the faithfulness of God in the midst of Paul's circumstance. And this is why so much of the expansion of the growth of the church has occurred under great stress and great persecution because that is when you see what you truly believe. You see the ones who are truly faithful. You see how much you really do care about something when it's being threatened. With no threat of losing it, many of us have no concern. This is why even many in the world say you don't know what you have till it's gone, right? Um, you, you, we lose someone that we love very dearly or we have something and we, just ne we always took it for granted. We never truly appreciated it. That person goes away. Um, for many of us, it could be a spouse, it could be a child, it could be a friend, it could be any circumstance. They're gone and we say, man, I really wish I would have appreciated that or I wish I knew what I had then. Imagine now having the threat of every Bible being confiscated and burned. How many of us would then look back and say, wow, I wish I appreciated my Bible more. I wish I would have spent time to read that thing. These are the things that, that were a reality for so many, and I'm not going to say that this is just a biblical reality in these different time periods. This is global, even today. Bible's not really allowed. Having a Bible, you're going to be killed, or at the very least, imprisoned for it. This is the reality of the world and how often, again, we often have so many Bibles, and I am absolutely guilty of this as well. This is not me saying, hey, all of you guys don't appreciate it the way that you should. Right? I'm right there. But when persecution, when trials, when these things do come up, are we going to endure or are we going to sit back? Are we going to be faithful or are we going to deny it? Often what keeps many in the church today afraid of, of sharing the gospel with anybody is, well, they may, say, they may reject it, or they may make fun of me, or they may just not like it. Well, that, that's not being chained to a Roman guard. That's not uh, go, being imprisoned. That's not being killed. That's not even close to any of it. A person saying, hey, I don't like that, they say that when you like a different sports team, right? When I say even here on a Sunday morning that I think Tom Brady's the greatest quarterback to ever play, you guys have great disdain for me, and that's okay. That's not persecution, right? 
How important is it to endure for the gospel in light of the trials? This is why he has joy, and he took his circumstance and said, you know what, as I already wrote in verse 6, he's bringing to completion those things which he began. So I have nothing but joy in the midst of my circumstance. He's looking back at being chained to a guard and says, hey, he's also chained to me. And he's bringing the message of the gospel to that person, not just complaining about it. And I'm hoping that as we look here, continuing on through Philippians, he's going to continue to talk about joy. While things are good, praise God and rejoice. When things are absolutely horrible, praise God and rejoice. The end is still the same. The purpose is still the same. And this is why we should have nothing but comfort, nothing but hope, and nothing but joy in what it is that God is doing. Let's pray. God, we do praise you this morning and each and every day for all that you have done. We praise you for the completion of, of Scripture, that we have a complete uh, canon, that we have your word at our fingertips at any moment that we wish. And, and even without a, a physical Bible, something so simple as using our phones or, or the Internet where we have uh, really no excuse to not have access to the truth of your word. We thank you that through so many different resources and things that you have provided that even those who, who don't understand these other languages, the ones in which it was written, that we can simply use those resources available. God, it is such an incredible privilege that we have to so easily access your word. God, I thank you that you've made it clear as you've spoken to us in your word that our the suffering and the trials that we endure are not just for the sake of suffering and just so that we can, we can endure these difficult things, but that our obedience is being made perfect, that you are growing us, that we are continually being sanctified in you, and that it is for our benefit as trials come that we would seek you and trust in you more. God, I pray that as is sure to come throughout the coming weeks and coming days, that as trials and tribulations do come, we rest assured of the promise that your son gave in John 16 that, that he has overcome the world, that we have no need to fear, but that the perfect love which you give to your people casts out fear and gives us a spirit of love and of sound mind. I pray that those here would be courageous and, and bold in proclaiming the truth of who you are with those within the home, within the workplace, uh, just in any area of the community. I pray that we would be a church and a people that would make you known to those around us, that we wouldn't shy away because of our circumstance or because we are discontent or unsatisfied with where it is that you have placed us, but rather we would rejoice in the situation and seeking to make you known regardless of it. When things are good, you are worthy of all praise, and when things are bad, you are worthy of all praise. We know that you are the same, and God, we rejoice in those promises that you are bringing to completion, and we await the day of bowing before the throne and being able to look upon you and to praise you for how great thou art, rejoicing with the fellowship of the believers from, from times past as you have gathered all of your church together in one place to see you as you truly are. God, we rejoice and we eagerly await that day. And we praise you for all that you are. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.